It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Achtung! EU Confidential begins with a little treat for our German listeners. In diesen Zeiten, in denen die Europäische Union diese Krise gestärkt bestehen will, in diesen Zeiten braucht es das Europäische Parlament. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And, well, we are into the start of the German presidency of the Council of the EU. So it seemed appropriate to start with Chancellor Angela Merkel speaking in the European Parliament on Wednesday. It was her first trip abroad since the coronavirus crisis hit. And Merkel showed she may be no rabble rouser, but she knows how to play to the gallery. She said that as Europe aims to emerge stronger from the crisis, it needs the European Parliament. We'll talk more in a moment about Merkel's trip and Europe's recovery plans, as well as how the EU is likely to handle China during the German presidency, and about France's cabinet reshuffle. And later, you'll hear from the EU's first public prosecutor, Laura Kudruta Covesi. But first, let's get to our pan-European podcast panel with Reem Montaz and Matt Karnichnik. Reem's in Paris. Hi, Reem. Yeah, hello. Uh, Matt's in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Good afternoon. Um, let's get down to the politics. A busy week for you, Reem, in um, France since we last spoke. So on Friday, uh, we got the name of the new prime minister. And on Monday evening, we got the new cabinet Jean Castex is the is the new prime minister, not uh, very well known. I mean, what's your take on it? I mean, it's very clear that Emmanuel Macron is positioning for the 2022 presidential election. Um, there's quite a bit of disappointment, even in his own ranks, because he was supposed to be the big disruptor. There's also obviously a, a, a real pronounced uh, conservative slant to this new government. Um, and listen, you know, in a way you can think that it might be um, a little, say, uh, cynical. People in his camp say, well, you know, the majority of the French public, it's just a reality. The majority of the French public actually vote on the right, center right and on the right. And so it makes sense from a political electoral perspective for him to position this way. But, you know... That just sounds very old-fashioned and not exactly very disruptive. Now, of course, there was one very big disappointment, which was that uh, he named a prime minister who just seemed to be, uh, you know, the 2.0 version of the one he got rid of. So uh, a man in his sort of a middle-aged man who went to, you know, the big finishing schools here, the big universities, who is a local elected official, who's a former conservative and quite low profile. And also, why didn't he replace him with a woman? 
Emmanuel Macron, during his presidential campaign, said that he would like to see a woman prime minister. Well, he's the one who decides. And that was also uh, disappointing. An editorialist in France actually, you know, in reaction to this, uh, to this uh, lineup said, you know, it was the buff reshuffle. So in French, it means the sort of shrug reshuffle. Right. I mean, it does have a very familiar look at the top of government with a lot of the big jobs staying with the, the same people, the same men, and, you know, not, not a great deal of kind of freshness in its in its overall appearance. So I can understand that the boff thing, which I remember when I uh, learned French as a kid at school, I remember being uh, amazed at this French word boff, is a kind of vocal expression of the Gallic shrug, right? So to you, it's very different than meh? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Really? Both. Yeah, I don't know the difference between boff and meh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's one, somebody could write a PhD on that maybe. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem like it didn't exactly uh, set the heather on fire, as they say where I come from. Um, but let's see how, you know, how these, um, some of the new faces and how the, the kind of old faces with more power, how they settle down. Do we know who's going to be in charge of, of Europe? Well, obviously, Le Drian, the foreign minister, has that in his title. But do we know yet who's going to be the, the you know, the Europe minister? Yes. So as you know, the French foreign minister, his full title is the Minister of Europe and Foreign Affairs. But there is always a Secretary of State who's a junior minister who's in charge of European affairs. And that uh, was Amélie de Montchalin until uh, Monday. She's been promoted to another job and uh, we're still waiting to know uh, who's going to be appointed the next uh, sort of junior minister, Secretary of State for European Affairs. We're supposed to know by the end of this week, uh, clearly next week is a very important big week with a uh, with many important meetings in in Brussels concerning obviously the recovery plan so uh, there seems to be a sort of urgency but so far uh, we are not sure that we're going to get that name mm. by the end of this week, but that's what they're saying. Interesting, because certainly Emily de Bonchelin became a you know a well known a well known presence here in Brussels, so there'll be a lot of interest, I think, in in who takes her place. Um, I mean, talking of of Brussels and the recovery fund, Angela Merkel is here today as we record on Wednesday evening, uh, setting out her plans for the German presidency of the Council of the EU. Spoke to the European Parliament this afternoon and uh, is uh, meeting a lot of the other top EU officials. Matt, what do you make of what she's been saying and, you know, her chances of uh, shepherding a recovery fund deal over the line at this summit, which is at the end of next week, Friday, Saturday? Well, it seems most of what she's been doing in Brussels today has been a protocol. You know, I mean, this is sort of to show that Germany takes the presidency very seriously. She said as much. This is her first foreign trip since the pandemic, and she made a point of showing and saying how important it was for her to go to Brussels on her first trip and so forth. So I think there's there's that. The problem is, is that the people she needs to convince to come along on this recovery fund venture are not in Brussels. They're in the capitals. And so I think you're going to see a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, diplomacy in, in the coming 10 days or so. But it, it will be difficult, particularly with the Dutch. Mark Rutte is coming to Berlin tomorrow, where he'll meet with uh, Merkel. Uh, I would be very surprised if if he leaves having agreed to the fund, um, if for no other reason than the, 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 the PR of it at home would, would, would not look very, very good. I think he needs to uh, 
push this as long as possible, and the same is true for for the Austrians and 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 the others. Yeah, that's it. And Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban said today he didn't expect, or he found it very difficult to imagine there would be a deal at the summit. And as you say, I think even if it was possible for them just to kind of sit there and even go into Sunday or Monday to get this done, the optics of that, as they say, uh, are difficult for those who want to at least show they're putting up a fight, right? And the way you do that is by leaving a summit without an agreement. Otherwise, I'm not sure your voters uh, notice if you've been putting up much of a fight. I think it's really interesting because the French have really staked a very big, uh, sort of very big importance on getting uh, an agreement at this summit. They keep saying, and they've been saying explicitly, Macron has said it publicly, his aides, his advisors have said it to us also, that it's extremely important to send the right message to uh, make this deal quickly, to make it now, that it can't wait until the fall, it would be too late, um, and it wouldn't send the right message to the markets, to the people about sort of the European unions. Uh, sort of relevance and efficiency when it comes to sort of something very real in their lives. And so, you know, you can expect Macron to give it his all. You know, he also needs this diplomatic win, let's be honest, mm. you know. this. Well, I just wonder if it, if it kind of suits both sides, right? It suits the ones who are pushing to say, we pushed hard, we did everything. And it suits the ones who are resisting to say, we held out. And then they all come back in a couple of weeks and everybody can kind of say they, they kind of played their part. So um, let's see. I noticed that Angela Merkel today, you know, it's amazing how we can read so much into words. I think previously she's talked about the importance of getting a deal before the summer break for der Sommerpause. But today she just said a deal im Sommer, in the summer, in the which summer. would then allow that to include August. So who knows how many summits and how long will be. But that's not reading into it. That's actually diplomacy like that. Yeah probably is a signal. Exactly. It seemed to me like she was leaving her options a bit more open there. Um, Matt, let's switch topics now because you wanted to talk about China, which is obviously a big ongoing topic. I mean, one aspect of it is you can kind of see um, perhaps a a foreign policy effect of Brexit with um, the UK taking a harder line on what's been happening in Hong Kong than the EU, the EU 27, the the 27 who remain in the EU. This is going to be a big topic in the German presidency as well. Angela Merkel wanted to host a summit with uh, the Chinese leaders in Leipzig. That's postponed, but could still happen. So where do you think Germany stands on all of this and how will that affect uh, where the EU is going on China, particularly with regard to, to Hong Kong? Well, I think somewhere in in the middle, as usual. Angela Merkel, throughout her tenure as chancellor, which has been 15 years now, has always avoided trying to take absolutist positions on these types of issues. If you remember during the crisis over Ukraine, Germany eventually agreed to impose sanctions on Russia, but that only came after the downing of MH17. They were pushing back for a long time on that. The Obama administration at the time was very aggressively nudging the Germans, trying to get them to accept sanctions. John McCain, who was still alive at the time as well. And, you know, this this to me is, is, is quite similar in the sense that they don't want to close all of their options with China. They don't want to do something that is going to damage the relationship to a degree that the Chinese would somehow penalize the Germans, especially now, given the uh, the crisis and the economic effects and the 
interdependence economically. But China has been sort of the growth market for German exports uh, for many years now. And it was China after the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009 that really saved Germany's bacon because demand in the U.S. kind of fell through the floor. And China was relatively unscathed at the time and really helped Germany on this growth path that lasted until until the pandemic hit. So I think Merkel has all of these sort of factors in mind. And there's also this kind of long tradition of Germany trying to play the middle on these issues. I'm sure many listeners will remember the Ostpolitik, the detente politics that West Germany pursued during the Cold War, what the Germans called Wandel durch Handel, transformation through trade. And I think that they're still pursuing, you know, this idea. It's not controversial here. There's been some discussion about Huawei. And I think looked at from the outside, you know, you will see some politicians in all of the parties criticizing, you know, Merkel and, and sort of warning about Huawei and, and this, that and the other. But as we wrote this week about Deutsche Telekom, the main German telecommunications company has been behind the scenes still you know, doing deals with Huawei, and it looks like they're going to have some role, if not a major role, in 5G here, despite warnings by the U.S. that they might cut Germany off from intelligence sharing if they go forward. And I think, you know, Germany really sets the example on these issues for the rest of Europe. Mm. Just to say, um, a lot of our listeners are actually quite a lot younger than you, Matt, so they may not actually ah. remember Ostpolitik ah, and all of that. Sorry but, about uh, that. Well, good that open a history them a little, uh, Good that you've give, given them a little history lesson. Um, the other interesting aspect here is, even if you kind of set the EU aside and look at the kind of the big three diplomatic powers in Europe, if you like, if we include Germany in that, in that group, so uh, Germany, France, the UK, again, a divergence there which perhaps makes more difficult the idea that I think some harbour, uh, including in the UK, that the E3 could become a kind of regular forum, a kind of foreign policy kind of triumvirate, even after Brexit, right? I mean, we, they're trying to keep it together over Iran, and even that's not easy, but it looks like going beyond that may be actually pretty difficult. Well, I think this is, a, you know, a real sort of conversation that's happening, a real debate, which is whether global Britain, so the UK outside, you know, of the EU and how it wants to position itself on foreign policy once Brexit is done, really done. You know, there's a big question. Is it going to turn what is known as the Five Eyes uh, into a real actual alliance? Uh, the Five Eyes being sort of a, a loose connection between the US, UK, Australia, New Zealand and Canada to, you know, share share intelligence. But we saw that the UK opted for uh, a statement on Hong Kong with the Five Eyes as opposed to opting in, to, in for a statement with the E3, so France and Germany. Uh, and I think that's interesting. And I know that, you know, the Europeans or France and Germany would have gone for a statement uh, with the UK in the E3 uh, format, and that didn't happen. So I think that question, you know, remains, it's sort of a, an open-ended question, right? now how the UK is going to decide to position itself and maybe it won't and maybe some days it, it will use the E3 format and in other on in other issues it'll use the five eyes or the bilateral with the US and sort of keep its options open yeah no I think that's certainly um, how a lot of Brexiteers would prefer to play it just be much more kind of ad hoc and we'll see we'll see how that develops. but I, I I wonder though in the long term it seems that they really are tying themselves to the American mast here yeah and that 
when push comes to shoves, that that's the direction they're going to go. And and the European response to Hong Kong was fairly mealy mouthed. And I think also for domestic reasons in the UK, given the history of Hong Kong and its connections to Britain, you know, this played well at home. But with a certain constituency, I think it did. With a certain constituency, with his core constituency, probably. But they seem to have written off any hope of deepening economic ties with the Chinese in 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 the near to midterm. In any case, yeah. but the the U.S. connection is clearly much more important. To them. Which means, I mean, even in that choice, just to go in your direction, Matt, that they're they're clearly making the you know banking on the U.S. connection uh, if they're willing to forego that sort of deeper Chinese relationship. Well, so yeah, it's like that question, which um, Matt, you've written about before the idea of a G2 world where you have to kind of pick a side and, and they've decided, you know, their side is the US. Basically. Right. And I think, you know, and, and, and this definitely is a change, because I, I remember a few years ago when um, the British diplomats were flooding into China, trying to, you know, make inroads there, especially in services, especially in financial services. But maybe they're also figuring if if Hong Kong is is effectively shut down by this, the financial services sector there is at least impaired. Maybe there's there's not much really for them to do anyway. But it it does feel like like this is a very significant moment for um for the UK Chinese relationship. Mm. Uh, Reem Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And now let's hand over to Politico's Lily Beyer. She recently spoke to Laura Quadruta Covesi, the head of the brand new European Public Prosecutor's Office. Lily talked to her about her role and what the new institution will do, and about her previous job as chief anti-corruption prosecutor in her home country of Romania. Um, You are a household name in Romania, uh, which is quite unusual for a prosecutor. How can you account for this phenomenon? Why has your role sparked so much attention in your home country? Well, uh, based on my previous experience, I I can say that uh, the entire Romanian society, especially the citizens, wants to live in a clean country, in a country with less corruption, let's say that. And uh, because of the uh, results obtained by uh, the anti-corruption prosecutors, I think the attention of the public were especially uh, to this uh, field, to the corruption, because even if uh, uh, we said for many times corruption can influence our daily uh, life. So I think this was the reason why the Romanian citizens were so interested by the, by the justice. And also, I think that they saw that we apply the law equally for everybody. As This is a very important principle for rule of law, to apply the law equally for everybody, even if uh, we investigated persons who had an important position in society or not, we apply the law equally. Uh, you became a prosecutor at quite a young age and made quite a, a name for yourself going after some of Romania's uh, most powerful political figures. How did you come to that position? Well, I have been a prosecutor for uh, uh, almost 25 years. Uh, when I was 33, I became the general uh, prosecutor of Romania. So 
uh, to work in uh, the anti-corruption uh, prosecutor office in Romania was something natural for me. It becomes natural. And I really wanted to, to do something in my work and to try to influence the life of the citizens in a way that uh, to improve their lives and to protect them uh, from the, the corruption. Can you tell us a bit about your new role? What will it entail and how will it differ from your role as a national prosecutor? Well, uh, I was appointed of the European chief prosecutor and I think my previous experience also as a general prosecutor and also as a chief of uh, anti-corruption prosecution office in uh, in Romania offers me the support and uh, to do a very good job also here. But it's important to say that from now on, we will have a, a prosecutor office at the European level. And this is the added uh, value that uh, the European institutions bring for the European uh, citizens. And I'm sure that what I did in my previous position will be a good premise to continue and to do a good work here in EPPO. In the, in the end, we work for the citizens. Through our work, we will uh, uh, improve the protection of the European funds. And I think we should um, prove together with my colleagues that the law is equally for everybody because this, this is a main principle for the rule of law in all the member states and uh, also for, for the other countries. Are there any specific sectors, countries or regions that you will think will take up more the attention of the uh, new uh, office than others? Well, our attention will be... In, the, in, in principle, in those 22 member uh, states participating to EPPO, because there will be our main jurisdiction. Uh, I have to say that um, uh, in the beginning of my activity here in EPPO as chief prosecutor, I started to make an estimation, an evaluation. And for that, I asked to the member states to send some statistics related to the number of the cases in the four uh, years um, but only for those cases that falls under our jurisdiction. And it's very interesting that based on these statistics, I saw there are huge differences between the member states. There are some member states and uh, with only, let's say, two or three or eight uh, cases in one year. And there are some member states uh, in the same period of time, they investigated more than uh, 600 uh, crimes, 600 cases. So having EPPO, I think we will not have these discrepancies between the member states because to investigate this uh, type of crimes will be a priority for all uh, European delegated prosecutors. And uh, I, I uh, should say that uh, these European delegated prosecutors, they are an absolutely novelty. Why? Because they will uh, not be constrained by the inherent limitation of the national system to conduct their investigations. They will benefit from the EPPO's unique capacity to obtain, aggregate and analyze information at the European level. Um, they will be able to use evidence administrated in another member state without heavy formalities. They will be able to identify and freeze criminal assets. So uh, I think in this way, we will not have these discrepancies in the, between the member states. And in this way, we will try to unify the jurisprudence and we will try to have the same level of protection in all the member states. 
I see. And uh, perhaps uh, as a final question from us, on a more personal level, um, when you were in Romania, you handled some incredibly high-profile and sensitive political cases. Um, I think a few years ago, if I remember correctly, two individuals working for a private intelligence firm even pleaded guilty to trying to spy on you. So that must have been a very tense and difficult environment to work in. What what kept you going and how did you handle that? Well, joking, let's say that uh, that was a training for the current job that I have now. And uh, I think I'm very used to work with uh, with pressure and I'm um, used to deal with this kind of things. But what I want to say uh, that it's very important for me because at that moment, the prosecutors in Romania were really independent. And this is the main premises for uh, to, to fight against corruption, to fight against organized crime and uh, serious crimes. So in this moment, EPPO will be an independent body. And the European delegated prosecutors who will work in EPPO will be independent. So based on my previous experience, I will try to help them, to encourage them, and uh, together to build a strong team, an independent team. So, um, of course, at the personal level, sometimes it can be difficult to, to, to manage with this situation. But let's say that I'm very trained on this field. So uh, I can use this uh, experience and to share with my colleagues and together to, to obtain good results for, uh, for EPPO and in the end for the European citizens. Mm-hmm. And what do you think will be your biggest challenge in the coming months? Well, I think there are a lot of uh, biggest challenge, but the, the, the first one is to organize everything together with the, with the college. And I hope that they, uh, they will be appointed uh, soon because it's very important to have the other uh, European prosecutors here in Luxembourg and to work together to adopt the internal rules and everything that is necessary. And uh, another uh, big issue will be the budget and the resources of EPPO. If we will not have enough resources, we cannot do a, a good job. And uh, we are still negotiations for the budget. And I count on the support of the parliament and ministers to establish a budgetary framework for the EPPO and in the new multi-annual financial framework, which will be uh, commensurate with the EPPO competencies, powers and responsibilities. How much money do you need from your perspective to make this new institution effective? Well, I uh, I should avoid to give uh, numbers in this moment because we are in the middle of negotiations. But uh, it is important to say that we need a minimum uh, resources to start EPPO, and after that, minimum resources to continue our uh, work and to 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 have enough resources to do our work. What is very important to say is that, based on our evaluation, we will receive in the beginning more than three thousand cases. This means that we the minimum for us to start is to have one hundred and forty European delegated prosecutors, and based on this number, we will ask for for more money to have enough budget. To 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 deal with uh, everything that uh, will fall under our jurisdiction. Thanks to Lily for bringing us that interview. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Please take a moment to rate the podcast by clicking some stars and leaving a review. For those of you who make it all the way to the end here, the EU Confidential Ultras, we do read all of your comments. 
And we read all of your emails too. The address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.